Hello, everybody. Welcome to Not Safe for Wonks. I spent the last two hours just wrestling with my audacity settings. So, you know, I'm definitely going to be using this thing. <laughs> it's uh, just a major pain in the ass. And I'm here with some guests. Um, Rachel, you're actually not really a guest anymore. No, I've been like a formalized host for months now. Yeah, it's like when somebody moves into your apartment, they they just they've started paying rent. They're probably paying more rent than you are. It's like, is this even this might just be your show now. Yeah. Mariah is also here. <laughs> hey. We're excited to have you, Mariah. So um couple quick things. You are on the county commission for Athens Clark County, that's right? That's true. I've been there for about two years now. Got elected in two thousand eighteen. And awesome. fight the good fight to this day. Awesome. And for folks who don't know, uh, that is where UGA lives. So just... it's where UGA lives. It's also like where Ugga lives as well. Yes. Whenever you need to imagine a, a football player almost getting bit in the crotch, that highlight will live forever. <laughs> I forget which Ugga that was, but that matter. was one of my one of my formative childhood memories. So this is like a goofy anecdote that I'm just going to force into your earballs now, but. Um... When I was like first dating my kid's dad, um, we went and visited his house, you know, just to say hello, meet the parents, whatever. And while I was there, they told me this story about their dogs. And so apparently they had like three separate dogs named Frisbee. And it's like all of the Frisbees died. <laughs> like all of, of, I mean, not like quickly, like they lived like reasonable dog lives. Yeah, but it's not like, Just getting up and going into the living room and dun, dun, dun. Yeah, they were all fucking chihuahuas. So it was like, you know, Frisbee is dead. Long live Frisbee. But now every time I think about the Uggas and like all of the Uggas, I'm like, oh, it's like Frisbee. (laughs) Like, that's just the thing people actually did in their like lives. So anyway, that's just a random fun aside. We have fun here. Yeah. So, Mariah, can you talk a little bit about the political character of Athens? What's it like if you've never been and you only know that there's a, a, a football team there? that doesn't quite win the national championship every year and breaks all of our hearts like clockwork. Aside from that, what should people know about Athens? Sure. So, I mean, Athens, you know, the median age in Athens is about 27, and we have a really high level of education here. A lot of people graduate from the University of Georgia and end up staying, or they're faculty or instructors at the University of Georgia. So that combination of like a younger population and a well-educated population, I think we generally have a pretty liberal populace. We were a little blue dot in the middle of a red state. Uh, we are also, however, the hometown of uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. And so I think that adds an interesting <laughs> modicum of spice to like our political history. But, you know, I think we're a town that culturally is very liberal. We have a very strong arts and music scene and things like that. And so it's one of those cases where on the surface level, it seems, especially if you're white and middle class, like, oh, well, we, you know, everything's all good here. We're understanding and accepting of our neighbors without a lot of good policy historically to back that up in terms of dealing with the inequities of the racialized poverty that we have in Athens. We have one of the highest poverty rates of a city of our size in the country with about 38%, though we only have about 3% um, unemployment rate. And so we have a lot of problems, but a lot of the people who wield political power in the city haven't had to face those directly. And so for a long, long time before folks like myself came along. Uh, I think we kind of had a culture of like, everything's hunky-dory, everything's good, you know? So I think that around 2016, people started to wake up and see that I wasn't good enough. 
And so a lot of people becoming more politically active and that turning into a very energized political arena during the 2018 municipal elections. So a bunch of progressives ran on things like criminal justice reform, affordable housing, fair free public transportation, living wages, where no one had been talking about that stuff on a local level ever. And we were all elected. We were the first majority progressive commission elected in the city's history. Um, I was the first... Um, queer person to serve publicly in Athens. Um, I guess I still am, but you know, we're trying to work on that, trying to fix that. And so I think that people started to pay more attention and realize that the status quo wasn't working for everyone. And we have to do, if we can't seize power and do something at the federal level, at the state level, we can do a lot locally, or at least that's what we hoped. And so that's kind of where we're at as a city in terms of Athens. Uh, joining us on the call is also our other co-host, uh, Kennedy Cooper. So we have the the whole OG3 is here together. <laughs> I, I had to pull a Brandon and show up halfway through a recording for once. No, we only, did the first, we only did the first question. We only getting warmed up. Well, great. I got most of that answer. It was very, it was very great. I love talking with anybody who's interested in changing their local political landscape. I think that's extremely important. So I've been very excited for this. I'm glad I made it. Happy to be here. One of the things that like bums me out uh, when, when I talk to people who are in political office is um, when you are in a blue area, like here, we're in Georgia, and a lot of our conversation is like, man, if we could just get better people into office, we would solve so many of our political problems. But like when I talk to people who are in office in Washington, Oregon, California, New York, I think there's a lot of disillusionment because it turns out like, Voting a bunch of Democrats into office does not necessarily solve all of your political problems. Nah, <laughs> no, it does not. And I, that slowly dawned on me very sadly over these two years that, you know, you run a bunch of progressives and you get them in and, you know, only so many of them are going to win in the first place. But then those who win, like, are going to get bent by the system that they are serving in. So they're going to get bogged down by the amount of information that we have to absorb or side you know, sidetracked by moneyed interests or discouraged by things happening at the state or federal level that impede our progress. And so what they're actually able to do sometimes in a state like Georgia specifically is very, is hindered in a number of ways and people give up really easily. I've seen among some of the progressives that got elected here in Athens. And so I can't imagine how dope it would be to serve in a state like Oregon, where like perhaps they have, you know, more cooperation at the state level to get stuff done. But I've seen too many folks here that like have kind of thrown up their hands and said, well, living wages can't do anything about that. Well, you know, minority set aside for contracting can't do anything about that because of our governor. When it's like, no, we have to continue to keep fighting. Don't, don't, don't leave me like that. <laughs> What are some of like just in general, like not even talking about the specific stuff that's going down this year? What are in general some of the attitudes that are most harmful or are the biggest obstacles to change locally and statewide? Just what are the things that you run into that make you just go, oh, whether it's structural or personality wise or anything like that? Um, well, structurally, like we're elected, but then we have this huge government, you know, the, the city manager's office and the folks around like the transportation department and uh, public works and the transportation, or I already said transportation, but you know, all these different uh, departments that might come from a very different lens than you do in terms of equity, in terms of service delivery for different parts of the county. And so, and they're the ones that are giving us all the information to make our decisions around about what they recommend 
our ways forward. And so trying to like come to that with like a lens of equity and justice and like decipher that and see through some of the ways that the information we're given is spun, uh, given the the ideologically loaded viewpoints of the folks that's, that are running these departments, they might see themselves as objective and very empirical and scientific, but everyone has some sort of skew. And so figuring out how to read through these documents we're given for like what biases are present and how we can counteract that with adjustments and amendments on the legislative side of things. I also find that some of the policy issues you run up against with the state government. I've seen a number of progressives, like I said earlier, you know, say that, well, there's nothing we can do about this. Let's stop fighting. Though I also see my position in the local government as a part of raising the alarm about these things, bringing awareness to the fact of how the Department of Corrections is preventing us from implementing payment for inmates who are doing labor for the county. You know, just because the Department of Corrections doesn't say no, just just because they say no, doesn't mean we should should stop fighting them or bring awareness to the public, you know, how much this service is bringing benefit to the county and helping build a movement to create public pressure to change that policy. So I think that perhaps a lack of imagination or political will to continually engage in that fight where we are at odds with our state government is another mindset I see very often in local politics. Well, so you talked about um, some of the issues that you're facing with like paying inmates. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons I actually wanted to have you on the pod is because your Twitter bio explicitly says prison abolitionist, which is oh, yeah, like... I love prison abolition as like a movement. So I wanted to give you sort of just the floor here and talk about, uh, you know, how that became your viewpoint, what it means to you uh, and ways you would, you know, if you had the power, apply it here in Georgia. Yeah. So my story of coming into prison abolition is perhaps funny, perhaps a little whack. I, for those who, you know, I'm on video chat with y'all, but for listeners who can't see me, I have a very large afro and I have since I was 15 years old. And so when I was growing up, older cats would always be like, yo, you look like Angela Davis. And so I had to look into like who she was. I was very interested, like who is this Angela Davis woman that like people keep comparing me to? And so I read Art Prison's Obsolete. I read a number of her abolitionist writings. And then I was like, yo, that's actually what's up. Like, I'm really proud of this comparison, even if it's superficial. And so that was my initial entry into prison abolition. It was further calcified by something that happened in my family shortly before I was elected. I um, had an aunt who went missing and then it turned out that she was murdered by her grandson, who's my cousin. And so in dealing with the fallout and aftermath of that, you know, the the prosecution in that case calling for the death penalty for this 19 year old boy who had suffered from mental health issues his entire life, who had been, I, I would, you know, say like radicalized into, or, you know, in a violent way by being a part of the military, you know, the thing that he would either spend the rest of his life in prison or be sentenced to death, that, that wouldn't bring any justice for my family. And it got me thinking about like what justice actually looks like outside of the criminal legal system in terms of supports for victims of crimes that help make their lives whole again. And so when I I think about prison abolition in the context of local and state government, I think about, you know, first of all, investing in programs that help deter crime on the front end by ensuring people have a meaningful engagements with their community, you know, things to be a part of that aren't gangs or things that give them sustenance other than robbing or stealing or things like that. And also like, what does justice look like for families? What do we need to do? What kinds of programs do we need to be funding so that folks that are harmed by crimes actually get some sort of 
um, relief on the other side of it. So, you know, locking somebody up does not necessarily mean that they are made whole or that they are able to come to terms with what happened with them. And so what does a budget look like for a city government or for a state to, you know, create and support and build out programs that actually bring justice rather than simply incarcerate? So uh, what would justice look like for your family and your cousin if you had, you know, the space to do it? Yeah. And so it looks really different for different members of my family. I think that they would love for Isaiah, my cousin, to be able to come home. And that would mean, you know, significant investments in some mental health counseling for him, some even life skills training for him, because he went into the military and learned all about the weapons that he used to kill my aunt, you know, through being a member of the military. And so like retraining him in how to get by in the world without having to resort to being a part of the military industrial complex. So, you know, having some sort of facilitation where we're, we're able to sit down and all talk with each other and talk with him about what happened, how we got there, where we go from there. And so supports like that, I think, would give us a lot more closure than knowing that he's never going to get the help he needs. And in fact, we'll be further hardened by sitting in a prison cell for the rest of his life. Do you think if we were able to accomplish some type of prison, like major prison abolition or alternatively like a, a major uh, disarmament of the military or a major change in our police force, do you think that there would be a significant need for like mass scale deprogramming of people in effect out of like these violent tendencies that they've absorbed? And do you have any ideas about what that might look like on a larger scale than just you know, the story of your family, which is very important. But like, there's a lot of people with these kinds of stories of somebody who, you know, was programmed by the military, was programmed by the police force, was programmed to be a border agent, you know, and then they're never really okay afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that having to work within a reform mindset, oftentimes, I'm sort of playing a lot of defense. And so thinking ahead to what sorts of deprogramming on a very large scale would look like is a bit beyond what I get to dabble in for the most part, policy wise. But I do imagine it as being very linked to our educational system. The fact that a lot of young folks where they're getting these initial ideas of their val the value of their life and how that then positions them with their community, whether they're going out and joining gangs or engaging in other violent tendencies um, starts off with their access to counseling and support, which is predominantly given within our public school system right now. And so building that out so that we're helping folks avoid that kind of path ultimately as well. That's one place that I think that we could do significant investments now to help curb some of the t trends we're seeing and particularly in communities like mine where we do have high crime rates and high poverty rates. Yeah, yeah. Um I mean, like, there's so much research backing up what you're saying about, like, planning ahead, you know, and just creating a kinder world. And you said something earlier about um, your cousin becoming more hardened by prison, you know, and I think there's something to this notion of being hardened. And like Kennedy said, you know, the things that you have to do to a person to make them willing and able to kill another person on command, it does break people, you know, and I, I want to take a second and like pull over and just say like, I'm so sorry that happened to your family. Thank you. I appreciate that. Y'all deserved better than this. Yeah. And it's, it's animated a lot of my policymaking in a lot of ways. The fact that like he was also implicated in the, an, another murder of someone that is suspected to be his mother's drug dealer. And so the fact that like people in my family were turning to drugs because of the lack of economic opportunity where they live, the lack of educational opportunity where they live, the lack of access to healthcare where they live. 
fact they have to drive an hour to go see a doctor, let alone breaking the stigmas of accessing mental health care to have gotten help for my cousin or his mother who is bipolar and deals with drug addiction. And so I like I it's not just about decarceration. It's about like how we give people access to all these things to avoid these things happening in the first place. Right. The best solution for crime is prevention. Yeah. And not prevention in the sense of like, let's put up, you know, security cameras and in, in surveil the neighborhood so that we can ca- maybe catch people or make people paranoid so they won't commit right. crime. But like, how do we support them in a way that that doesn't even occur to them as an option? Right. How do we, you know, undo these generations of violence and trauma that people have been surviving? Yeah. You know, I mean, we have a, a friend of the show named Circa who's kind of grew up in the military and she talks about this a lot too. You know, it's this just culture of violence within, you know, impoverished communities that I think is really deliberately created. You know, like you talk about like Noam Chomsky talks about like manufacturing consent, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that there are ways that it is very intentionally reified uh, by the media, by the way teachers interact with students, by the way the military will come directly into like the cafeteria of a school during lunch hours and try to snatch them up then, you know, and it's just so incredibly unfair. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's, there's like a real issue with access to the right kinds of resources, which is something uh, we talk about on this podcast a lot. It's also something that like, I was just thinking about today, like uh, rehab centers, you know, Exactly. For people that are suffering from drug addiction, there's this perception that rehab is something that's kind of available to anyone, especially because it's sometimes court ordered. You know, that makes it kind of sound in people's minds like, oh, it's a it's a public service. If I needed rehab, I could probably get it. This is like kind of the perception a lot of people have in their minds. But the reality is that many people live in places where the only available rehab centers cost tens of thousands of dollars for admission. That's not something that most people can afford, period. Uh, I sure couldn't um you know like i i don't i don't know many people who could afford to throw in some cases these rehab centers cost up to a hundred thousand dollars for admission and this is not even really on the high end this is still like just sort of in the normal range of this stuff and so there are certain states where people have access to uh rehab that's available to poor people cheaper free but that's very rare most people have no access to that kind of thing whatsoever and so yeah when we talk about people suffering with these things, it's like they literally don't have access to the tools, even if they these people who are suffering in various situations around the country, they want to go get help. They literally yeah. cannot. Even if they wanted to, where can they go? <laughs> what can they afford? Right. Right. What can you do when you don't even have the means to get yourself within grasp of the means? Yeah. Um, something I see a lot because I do live in a in a place that's a relatively blue state. We have some semi-progressives in office. Our governor is considered a progressive, kind of. You know, like, she's not, she's definitely not perfect, though. <laughs> let me be real. But one of the things that I see as one of the big issues is there tends to be entrenched power in some of this stuff. It is no coincidence that some of these expensive rehab centers are owned by rich people who are in office or who are related to someone in office who have that kind of influence. I think that there's a lot of times these these deeply rooted influences kind of like work against us more than we know. Have you had some experience like sort of seeing that side of things in terms of like seeing people's uh, sort of blatant corruption or like are people pretty sneaky about it in in like the realm of politics that you're in or or is it not really there? I mean, I would say at the at the level of of like municipal politics, 
I see more corruption and shady dealings happening within like the real estate sector than I would say the healthcare sector. Uh, and mostly because a lot sense. of the policymaking and budget making I'm doing is around public services like a neighborhood health center where anyone can go and get medication with no copays and things like that. When we kind of have these conversations about victims and respecting victims, Rachel asked you earlier about what your ideal version of justice would look like. And it was a very restorative vision of justice. Yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, there's a very large percentage of people, whether it's in our state or even nationwide, if you spoke to the average victim of a murder, somebody who was in their family or somebody who was intimately close to them, uh, their vision of justice would maybe be less restorative and sure, would maybe include the phrases like under the jail maybe be used. How do you, and this is less a question about exercising power as an elected versus just like philosophy. Sure. Um, how how do you ideally balance um, the emotional needs of the people who are most directly affected by a traumatic incident like violence versus what you may perceive as the needs of society to find something that's in that person to restore them and to rehabilitate them and have them as a part of society? Where do those rights intertwine and where should one have precedence over the other? Well, I want to start off by kind of jumping back to um, a question asked earlier about this deprogramming that needs to happen. And I think around folks that are so used to being offered this one vision of justice of like, you know, you take them out back and like you show them what's up or like they end up in prison. I think the normalization of restorative justice practices through our public school system could be a really powerful way to help change some of those mindsets and help people see that there is another way forward, one that does make our communities stronger on the other hand, instead of um, further fragmenting them by, you know, breaking up families and incarcerating folks. So I just wanted to put plug that part. But if you could repeat your question, I could perhaps actually answer it. <laughs> Where do you balance the, the desires of a victim who's been victimized by violence versus the desires of a society to rehabilitate an offender? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that it really depends on where we're at and like the reform and abolition struggle, like what we have to offer people in terms of justice and as well as as um, meeting the needs of society right now might look very different as the abolition project is like further underway. And I don't know if I have a good answer, honestly. One of the things, unfortunately, there are so many, quote, officer involved shootings, unquote, that is sometimes they kind of blend into each other. <laughs> and it's hard to break them apart. But do y'all remember uh, this lady that broke into this dude's house and just like just shot him? And there was a trial. Amber guy. And yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the judge like hugged this lady and was crying. And like it was a black judge who was just like, the I don't... Family, if I recall, like hugged yeah. her and like offered her, you know, grace and everything. Yeah, I'm all for restorative justice, but that did not sit right with me. Um, in fact, I remember being extremely angry looking at that video because uh, I don't know. I think there's kind of a difference between the systemic injustice that currently exists. There is such a systemic imbalance that the fact that this person got all of these things that Twittered, oh, we want to, oh, we want to embrace this person. But that doesn't exist for so many people. Did did you look at that as an affirmative model of what justice should look like? Well, I mean, I think that yeah, the short answer is yes. But the larger answer, I think, touches on some of your issues with that scenario. Whereas we're still dealing with a, a system that like is disproportionately impacting and killing, you know, ending black lives. And the fact that like this one drop in the ocean does not 
you know, it, it, it does nothing to bring any justice or any closure to the millions of people who have survived racial violence in this country. And so like, it seems kind of unfair when you weigh it against like how often folks don't get any kind of closure, folks don't get any kind of healing. And so I, you know, I think that in that general, that specific instance, if that's what was right for that family, then great. But like, we still have a lot more work to do. We shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back because we've gotten that far in that case where we, we need to be moving towards something that makes people feel like they have more closure in a more systemic way. Yeah, I mentioned earlier, um, sort of idea that there's this like culture of violence among class people. And I want to double back on that one and say, you know, shit rolls downhill, right? And so there's also cultures of violence among middle class people and, you know, mm-hmm. the right? And I think there's an extent to which, you know, we really have to look at this problem as this like rot that is that exists to continue this power dynamic. You know? Yeah. And exactly. I am sure this is something you have thoughts on. So I'm gonna just sort of like wind you up and let you go. But like what are ways you think we might be able to do that um, you know, interpersonally, state and local level, you know, and what perhaps are some things that you have done in your role as a commissioner or some policy that you've gotten across that you think might be helping to move us closer to that goal? So I think it it starts off with bringing down the rates of crime by cutting it off at its source, which is oftentimes poverty. Um, I have a really, like I said earlier, a really high crime rate in the community that I serve, but it's the poorest part of Athens in some parts of my district, the child poverty rate is like 50 or 60%. And so things like funding summer programs for kids, so they have something to do, so they're not out breaking into cars for fun. Or, you know, standing on the corner running drugs for somebody because they have nothing else to do. They don't want to be stuck at home where they don't have access to the internet. Like, giving some means for folks to be meaningfully engaged in their communities to help build them build a positive sense of identity, help them, you know, become productive citizens when they get older, so that we're organically bringing the crime rate down by helping build up citizens that feel their lives are valued by their community in one way or another. Um, I think also disincentivizing crime by helping people gain stable and meaningful employment. Um, we've you know, run up against some issues with state law with regards to raising the minimum wage, but uh, I've put some language into some pieces of policy in my last few years to help our economic development department incentivize cooperative development. So not only are people getting a fair wage, but they actually have a democratized workspace where they're, they feel empowered. They're making decisions about the place where they work. They're making decisions about the conditions of their employment. And so to both bring that increased wage home, but also feel like they have some more agency in their material conditions and in their lives. So I think that in the interim, as we work towards like, how might we implement more sort of justice practices in the way we wage justice as a municipal municipality, uh, thinking about, all right, how do we how do we just bring the crime rate down by giving people like helping people see that their lives are valued in these ways? Do you know what the overlying trend is for crime in Athens, like over just the last, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, whatever the period is? Has it been up as a whole or down as a whole? Or? Crime rate has come down in Athens. And I was actually looking at some really interesting statistics about the way the crime rate has changed over the last year. Crime has come down and it's practically in the pandemic. It's lower than it had been in the last year, as our incarceration rates have also dipped as well, as we've been letting people out of jail to stem an outbreak of COVID there. So I think that the discourse around crime has remained the same. People 
feel like it's dangerous out here because that's the way we've always talked about it. But the trends statistically show us that um, we're actually doing a better and better job of preventing crime from happening. So many of the, the, the media incentive is to report crime as if it's the 1980s. Oh, yeah. Like, the the amount of time and coverage that crimes get, especially if it's uh, people of color and white neighborhoods, is so disproportionate to the actual rates of crime that it creates that psychological effect on people. Uh, yeah. And that reflects in what people demand, because right, a lot of right. what people demand, I mean, is not just, well, what are their material conditions? It's like what they see. What you see is part of your material. I mean, it yeah. goes into your tubes. So, yeah. yeah. Does yeah, that bug I mean, you? And one of my biggest battles as commissioner is like some of the ideological gaps between myself and my constituents. I'm actually, I feel like a lot more progressive than the people that I represent at times. And it's no fault of theirs because they have had the criminalization of black masculinity sort of shoved down their throats their whole lives. And so the fact that like I get calls from people who are like, well, there are these people hanging out in the corner. It's like, well, what are they doing? Are they doing anything? They hurting anybody? Nah, they just chilling. Then like, just what's the issue over here? And so they see, we see each other. We see each other as criminals, even if nobody's doing anything. And so having to like talk through some of those issues and do as a part of like political education. It's interesting that they have you on the hotline and not the police. They go straight to the commission. <laughs> they go straight to your office. Well, they, they're like, well, the cops won't do anything. They call me because they're like, well, the, the police, the police won't come. Because <laughs> nothing is happening. Like, it's, people are allowed to hang out. It's a good thing we have a police force that isn't just coming through, breaking up groups of three or four youths, standing out in the street. Because, like, it's summertime and it feels nice outside and it's nice to be outside with your friends. <laughs> And are they being six feet apart from each other? That's the real question. Oh, well, I had a lot of that when we had mm. the shelter in place order at Athens. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to iterate, like, sort of jump in and also iterate on the fact that just like it is so frustrating. I also, I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. which has one of the weirdest reputations of any city in the country. And like, it, this is literally the cops city. They filmed so many episodes of cops here that the city sued the producers of cops to get them to stop filming all their episodes of cops here because it was making the city look really bad. And in reality, it's like you say, you know, when you show these particular stories, it kind of enforces these ideas in people's minds about what kind of crime is going on and stuff. And the reality is our crime rates are dropping. But if you just like go on like the Albuquerque subreddit and you find some post where somebody's like, hey, I'm thinking about moving to Albuquerque, there will always be at least one comment like, you're going to get robbed if you come here. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like, just the most just fear-mongering crazy stuff and i also i wish i understood how better to like break people out of that mentality and just be like look at the crime statistics like crime has fallen year over year for decades you know even episodes of cops they do not believe in bar graphs that's one <laughs> right. of the, people don't believe in bar graphs that's one of our big hurdles just as a whole um is kennedy is cops copaganda <laughs> it absolutely is it's copaganda <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I wish that I wish that that was an easier question to solve. And I can't imagine like, I think it's I think it's amazing that you're you're on the front lines of that actually fielding calls from people and trying to like change their minds a little bit because that's it's such a big yeah, issue. It's a very regular conversation I have with folks like, why aren't we being tougher on crime? And having to talk about <laughs> long term strategy and, and dealing with the crime that we do have. And also, again, deprogramming folks from like, black folks, 
included, especially in my district, because it's minority minority district, to not see one another as criminals. <laughs> we are our neighbors. These are the sons and daughters of your neighbors. These are the kids that your kids go to school with. Like, let them be children. <laughs> well, I think there's an insidiousness to the way that the language is used. You know, tough on crime. That's a phrase that it's on the surface. Everybody wants to agree with that, right? Like, I want to be tough on crime. I don't want to be soft on bad things. You know, I don't want to allow bad things to happen. So I'm tough on crime. A lot of people kind of absorb it that way without really thinking about what crime looks like. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about like what kinds of actual crimes people commit in Athens and like sure. maybe like what you think is a more appropriate response to these types of crimes in general. I know we've been touching on this a little bit already, but just to kind of like continue on that thought. Local level. Local yeah, level. I mean, there, there's things like disorderly conduct, like DUIs and drunkenness, things like, I guess, general crimes against society, you would say, as well as crimes against property or another kind, a common kind, larceny, counterfeiting, you know, break-ins, stuff like that. And then crimes against persons, obviously, like aggravated assault, sex offenses, stuff like that. The most common kind we do have are crimes against property, which is interesting. So it's not, there's like a, like a, there's like second tier victim crime where it's like, it sucks that they stole your stuff, but like they didn't hurt you. And that's pretty dope. And again, something that comes right. back, you're like, well, why are they stealing things? Do they have, do they have enough to eat? Do they have a place to live? Like trespassing is a very common thing that like, thankfully we don't, we don't lock people up for anymore. But um, like, why, like, why are they trespassing? Do they have anywhere to go? Did we look into that? Especially under quarantine, we saw a slight uptick in them. And it's like, well, a lot of homeless folks no longer can go into businesses to use a bathroom. So like they're like wandering around abandoned houses or something to like find a place to do the thing. Whatever. Apply, yeah. yeah. Well, they need to get out of the way a little bit. They know if they're on the street that they could be harassed just for standing on the street with these you know, shelter in place orders and stuff like that, Yeah. you know, and so just just kind of doing your normal thing as a homeless person, just trying to like sit on a curb somewhere could actually get you in trouble all by itself in a whole new way with these shelter in place orders. So, of course, they're trespassing and hiding in buildings. They don't want to get fucking busted by the police for no reason. No, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a section of my district that people call the block. It's this triangle shaped plaza where they got like a liquor store, a convenience store, like a lawyer business, like a Caribbean restaurant and people will just congregate there people will just congregate there and i get so many calls from constituents like we need to clean up the block you got people out here gambling and drinking and like all this stuff and it's like they're not taking into account like these people don't have anywhere to go and we don't have a so we don't have like strong social infrastructure in the black community in athens where these people can go to like the pool hall or a sports bar or you know their church picnic or something and have that sense of social solidarity and so like why shouldn't they just gather in public spaces the same way that on a saturday during football season you see tens of thousands of white people gathering downtown and so trying to just dis like disrupt some of that thinking and bring a new its perspective to it the actual reason is because you cannot be in any public space without spending money if exactly. this place was a building and you were rolling dice and you were doing whatever and like there had been like a 30 dollars cover charge to get in then suddenly that place is like a, a gentleman's club it is an establishment it's just whatever unfortunately like now any public space where you are like socializing with somebody with the exception of maybe a library where you have to talk like this anyway because somebody will come in there and yell at you it's like what are you even doing outside <laughs> like exactly. why are you not indoors somewhere yeah so it's one of those deals where everything just kind of connects with each other and right. comes together yeah. 
And so I want to normalize like people socializing without it being like a monetized exchange or interaction. I don't want to give people these spaces, like build a library over here on the east side um, where folks can gather and like, you know, have and socialize without it being seen as like a threat to our civility. I know in my part of Atlanta, there really aren't like community centers and like a proper perspective. Like there's YMCA. Like if you've got like 40 bucks a month to spend and go up there. But like, yeah, yeah, exactly. But really, there's no there's no public spaces where you can go. And I assume it's the same over there because it's the same most places in America. There's nowhere to go unless you're spending money. Yeah. And so we have to reinvest in that as a part of like helping make our communities whole. And Kennedy, I know you and Paperboy have been talking about those issues a lot. <laughs> um, we got to bring Paperboy back. Uh, aside, yeah, I hope but... so. <laughs> so you've you've been in office for a few years now, a couple yeah. years, you, you know, three or four, some change. Two, two um, years, two, uh, year uh, and a half, roughly. Yeah, close enough. So what has excited you the most in terms of things that you've been able to accomplish? I know generally, like, accomplishment is spoken of very cynically like it's like a liberal thing getting things done uh and it's usually like you're doing something that's really bad but it's something so it counts uh is there anything that you good or bad or medium that you have gotten over the finish line that you feel proud about since you started yeah so i'll name one thing that i got over the finish line and then i'll talk about something that's in the works right now that i'm pretty excited about too the first thing was getting uh rent relief for minority serving nonprofits and minority run nonprofits and this is kind of a wild story so it was gonna be it was coming up on time for the government to renew its leases with nonprofits that lease property from the government, like the Athens Neighborhood Health Center, the tutorial program where they teach kids how to read, as well as like the drama hall where they do like the local productions and like the Boys and Girls Club, all these different places. And so we asked them to like, could you just pull like what all the nonprofits in town are leasing our properties for? Can we look at that? And it turned out that all the nonprofits that were run by black people and mostly serving black people were paying thousands of dollars a month for these properties. Guess what the white run white serving nonprofits were paying? Just guess real quick. Well, because you gave a because you gave it as a question for suspense, I think guessing zero is a good guess to make. Zero. <laughs> no money. Zero dollars on wow. these did they have access years. to like a grant or something? That was fucking unbelievable. Why? Going on, yeah. And so, Why? so the town and gown players, where they have the the plays every six months, were paying nothing. But the place where low income people go to get their medications for no, they were literally cutting their budgets. They were cutting their summer camps for kids in order to afford paying their rents on government owned property. What was the hook? What like what was the? Because there's always like, oh, was there like some Matthew Lesko piece of paperwork that they filed out, or were they grandfathered in? It all took place under previous administrations, and so it was just ad hoc. Nobody understood why. No one understood Great. why this had happened. And so Great. I was really de- uh, delighted to lead the charge in bringing not only bringing the rents down for these minority-led pro- nonprofits to zero, but establishing that in perpet- perpetuity as a matter of reparations. And so that was something, a small thing, but like, what are the reasons why in local government, looking at the fine print and like digging into the history of like the way policy is set is really important because like, just because they're quiet about the racism now, the, like, you know, if you go back and look at the and look at the paperwork and look at the history, there's a lot of like pretty blatantly racist stuff that has taken place that hasn't been amended. That is part of the fabric of how our, our government runs. And like, unless you look into it, it's just going to continue quietly forever. Yeah. What's the project that's in the mix now? 
Well, project in the mix now. So um, I've been working with a group of residents that used to live in this part of Athens called Linentown that was demolished in order to make room for dormitories at the University of Georgia. So these properties were seized by eminent domain. The black families were kicked out. Most of them moved into public housing. Their houses were torn down in order to create dormitories. And so the city of Athens worked with the University System of Georgia to make this happen back in the 60s and 70s. And so I worked with them to put together a resolution for what reparations would look like for the descendants of these families. It did not pass because in it, we called uh, the University of Georgia a white terrorist organization. But, um, <laughs> but, but however, <laughs> we did push the mayor to create a committee, including folks from the University of Georgia, some commissioners, and it's led by the residents to determine what reparations for this will look like for them. And so I'm really excited that we at least got that conversation started and that over the next couple of months, we'll be working with these entities to get reparations for these people. That fucking rules. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> that's amazing, really. Like both of these stories, and this stuff contributes to you know, like the gap in generational wealth and things yeah. like that that affect communities of color versus white communities in these really profound ways. Where the average white person at least has some amount of generational wealth. You know, it may be small, but it exists. Um, a lot of black people in this country do not, and it's and it's taken it, from it, them. Yeah, right. If you're paying thousands of dollars a month for your nonprofit's non-profit. rent. Then, then of course you're not saving money. <laughs> like, of course, yeah. They're like, why are these why are these nonprofits not like doing so well in their like evaluation metrics? It's like y'all are squeezing the life out of them. What do you think they're gonna do? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this general generational wealth problem. The fact that like this one woman uh, who is part of the what we call the Linen Town Project. Like her family moved into public housing. Her siblings were like scattered to the winds. Her family couldn't afford to keep them. They couldn't, there wasn't space enough for them in public housing. So one of them went to live with their aunt and then the other one went to live with another aunt. It literally broke this family apart. And so like the way that the psychological impacts of that, as well as the economic impacts and the ways that like it, it continues down the line from generation to generation, you know? What's really fucked up, what's really fucked up is that nonprofit that's running out of that building and they're paying the extra thousand dollars a month, you know that they're having some they're having some kind of problem with their services, right? Because their budget is is messed up. It's overly stretched. So when the people that are being served by the nonprofit and it's usually like poor black people are there and they're doing it, and then the service kind of sucks, they're like, Oh, you know us when we get in charge of something, you know we broke. Us, yeah. When they're the serving the descendants of folks who had their homes seized by eminent domain generations ago, like it's all, it's all linked up. Self-perpetuates because that is now your experience in dealing with people who are like you is that yeah. the budget is stretched. They can't do it. Everybody looks tired. It's dingy. Then you go to that other place where they've just been grandfathered in and a thousand dollars, if you're running on a no budget, like it goes a very long way in the quality that you, of care that you can provide and yeah. experience and all that other stuff in small details that stand out to people that might not show up on a spreadsheet, but like are real ways that stick with you when you talk and you have like a real talk after you leave and you go home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, this really sucks because like I really feel like we could spend another hour just going into it. And by the way, like like we can you can come back. We can do this at any time. Oh man, this has been super fun. No, I would love anytime to. Anytime you got a free hour, you can drop in and we'll All make it. All right, some let me know. Uh, yeah. And um we are official uh Athens Clark County correspondent. All right, yo, we, let's go. Oh, I know yes. we could, we could actually get a couple of other folks from Athens. We'll talk after, but I know okay. a couple of people from Athens who could probably kick it on here. Oh yeah, but, 
we might have the same names in our heads right now. But anyway, <laughs> uh, can you talk to people about uh, where they can donate to your re-election campaign? Well, interestingly, so I won my first race by 13 votes. Um, but I, yeah, I know. <laughs> but I am Every actually vote running, counts. I'm actually running unopposed this cycle. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, what's up? That's awesome. I would ask people to instead donate to the Athens Mutual Aid Network. You can go to um, Mutual Aid Athens on Venmo, donate there. A lot of my friends that are, you know, they're autonomous, anarchist organization, helping people with rent, supplies, giving people rides to the doctor, all this dope shit. So, like, help them out. Also, there is a progressive candidate running in this election named Jesse Hool, running for commissioner in District 6. Wants to decriminalize all drugs as well as sex work. Uh, Tenants Bill of Rights for Athens. Uh, Living Wage is a Green New Deal for Athens. Really, really dopeness. A lot of dopeness. So check out Jesse Hool, H-O-U-L-E. I'm good, though. You ain't got to worry about me. But uh, I'm on Twitter anyway, just to hear your thoughts. Sure. Obviously, you can come find me on Twitter at Mariah F-O-R Athens. I'd often, I'm a rapper, so I often drop bars on there on political topics. You had something go viral just like three weeks ago with the Biden thing, right? Viral a couple weeks ago, yeah. Talking about Biden. Oh, yeah. Yes, but, you know, anyway. Lots, lots of, of brag. Lots of, uh, lots brag. of things on there. But, uh, yeah, Mariah F-O-R Athens on IG, Twitter, Facebook. Look forward to talking to y'all. Good stuff. That's okay, cool. so it's been another very good episode. Mariah, Kennedy, Rachel, we're all here. Just good times all the time. All the time. Totally. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And uh, have a great day. We'll talk to you again next time. Bye-bye.